I find it beyond amazing to learn about the tiny life that lives in soil. The communities of microbes and networks of fungi, barely acknowledged by most of us, are so involved and so integral to feeding the life of this world. You may or may not know this already, but it's hard to ever lose the wonder when you think of the unlikely perfection of the exchanges made. Microorganisms receiving their own food from the plant as they transfer back exactly what the plant needs for its growth. And when offered all the right ingredients in this way, the plants, just as extraordinary, can use them to develop the right blend of chemicals for their own defense which is pretty important if you're a plant, standing immobile in the soil, having to withstand whatever the world throws at you. And it doesn't stop there. When we consume plants as our own food, it just so happens that those exchanged nutrients and developed chemicals are just the right things that our bodies require to function, repair and grow. So intertwined are we with microbes that there is a mirror within us. They are part of us, our own biome, helping us to function and digest. Reminding us, perhaps, that we, humans, are part of nature, not something that's separate. As these relationships connect through the soil and plants and animals, they're also keeping everything in motion. The building blocks for life are cycled round and round and round, as once again, organisms too small for us to see break things back down into plant food. And just before we finish applauding all of this, we should also take note of the role that microorganisms play beyond feeding the world. Once again, working alongside plant life, they're also keeping things as huge as the water cycles and climate in balance. Cycling and storing water, carbon, and other atmospheric gases. Before I go any further, I want to welcome you to this new episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and as you've probably noticed by now, this is a new format for the episodes on the podcast. We've learned so much from our guests in the interviews, and we'll continue to do so with many more to come. But I'm also introducing or trialling these new dialogues alongside so let me know what you think. These are explorations that reflect on what we've learned. It is all through my lens, my perspective this time. So I'm taking creative license and becoming the storyteller to offer something which I feel is so needed, a bridge between the way we've become accustomed to seeing the world and the mindset of regeneration. You'll also be hearing the voices of guests from the podcast interspersed throughout, brought in to add wisdom and experience from different situations. But I'm calling these my common sense take. My common sense take on soil in this case. And I've chosen that hopefully not to sound too disparaging, but I've always found much of the way we do things in society simply nonsensical. And I'd like to attempt to help you see why. So this format is intended mostly as a point of inspiration, and I'd like to think a motivation for you to keep exploring regeneration, however it might fit into your life. You'll find links in the description to further resources for if you'd like to dig into things from a more scientific angle, or perhaps a more practical point of view. 
And there's also more information about the guests that you'll hear speaking through this. So what is my common sense take on soil? Well, despite such awe and wonder that the microscopic world offers to me, as I expressed when we kicked off here, I want to now make a distinction. This episode is not specifically about soil life. That is a huge, interconnected part of this. But there's a blunter picture that we can grasp first. And I do feel it would help if we start this common sense journey thinking of things that we can actually see. So for now, let's zoom out. Society has pulled us away from nature and often that makes things a whole lot more complicated than they need to be. So allow me, if you will, to reposition our thinking on this subject of soil, to that with the clarity, or perhaps freshness, of a child. Imagine that you are a bee, waking up in the spring a sweet scent on the air, early blossoms calling you. You feed well and each day, each month, as the year progresses, one bloom follows another. The hedgerows are alive and delicious, the meadows a symphony of colour. Even as the days draw shorter and colder, your surroundings provide. Ivy profuse with flowers, allowing you to prepare for the winter. You don't need to have any knowledge of plants to recognise when they're absent. Much of our land use today would see you, as the bee, waking up to scenes entirely different. Acre after acre surrounding you of bare soil, or a landscape of concrete and tower blocks. How long will it take you to find a meal? How many days of the year would a meal even be available? There are many absurdities that the modern world allows us to get accustomed to. Being surrounded by bare ground is certainly one of them. I realise, of course, that I've been talking of bees and not soil. But there's a point to that. We could replay in our imaginations as a worm instead, if you'd like though I thought that might be a little harder to visualise. Bare ground means an absence of plants. Pretty simple. And so there's no roots underground, and no leaves or flowers above, which in turn means no creatures, small or large, that would otherwise feed on them. No leaves to fall and decompose as the seasons cycle. But what is soil anyway? Because dirt isn't soil, and bare soil, if left bare, would eventually become dirt. It's kind of as though soil exists through the motion of life, which can only happen when there's all manner of other players, when we're seeing an ecosystem. The next point I want to consider is why, or perhaps more importantly how, has bare ground become such a common sight for us. I think exploring this question can go some way to helping birth an appreciation of this wonderful thing called soil. I like to consider soil as the canvas for life, and life is just so eager to create upon it. In circumstances excluding human development, our eyes would rarely land upon bare soil. So eager is life that you notice it will sprout 
even in the absence of soil. And through its presence there, that life will actually create soil, so that then it may create more life in larger and ever more diverse forms. And such is this system we call nature. A system that adapts, evolves and continually cycles from a seed upon a canvas of soil. Out of soil and back into soil, each plant will replenish this canvas. Any bare ground becoming covered, then starting to rise upwards and outwards in new bursts of life. Forest and grasslands covering much of the Earth's landmass, each awash with a unique blend of plants and creatures. And all of this from that microscopic life that I mentioned earlier, right through to the largest tree and mammal. It's not just beautiful, not just seems to hang on a wall. All of this combines to produce and sustain life, including balancing the climate. Life is not just eager to produce here. It's essential for maintaining the conditions that are required by it. So then back to the question, how is it that we are surrounded by so much bare ground? When we see the bare soils of our agriculture today, that's only been made possible through fighting against the eagerness of life, through taking very deliberate action to cull any life that would otherwise take hold and ensure a blank canvas only for that which we choose. And beyond the fields where we farm, our approach is of course even fiercer. Concrete and tarmac and paving. Without them, nature would rapidly retake her hold. So it's understandable, it's practical, it's convenient to approach the land in this way. Nature is so eager to create on her canvas that we could simply become overrun. But if we just take a step back from our desire to keep this growth under control, go back to our imaginations for a moment and forget the annoyance of weeds taking over, can you not feel an awe for this ability? Its determination, its utter poiresse in creating, thriving, building seemingly from nothing. I know it's easy for many of us to appreciate the beauty of nature, but I'd also like to instill a new sense of wonder for its extraordinary functionality. Rather than forcing it back as a foe, isn't it the type of player that you'd like to have on your team or partner in your company? I don't think that we can really consider soil as something that exists in isolation. If we really want our common sense grasp to be meaningful, then we need to quickly recognise that the true value of soil comes when it's part of a system. Soil is a factory. This isn't a scientific statement, but an analogy that I'd like to play with as we continue through. More accurately, we should call it a grouping of factories because it processes, builds and repurposes materials in an ever ongoing cycle. Our analogy is limited because society doesn't have the foresight of nature or its complexity. 
Soil is like the network of factories that society should have for a truly circular economy. This analogy may cause concern for people who are used to thinking about regeneration. There have been many issues created through our oversimplification of nature and treating plant growth as though it were a mechanical process, and it certainly isn't. My choice to compare soil to a factory may be questionable, but when it comes to bridging an understanding, I think it can work so well to relate something to that which we're familiar with. My intention is to nurture a sense of nature in constant creation. A motion of building and recycling and rebuilding with no possibility of even having waste. A potential of perpetual growth. But to be able to work with this power of abundance, we need to recognise that it's not due to magic or unexplainable forces. It is a continuation of growth made possible only due to the presence of many interconnected relationships. So let's try this. Soil is a factory. It has workers that show up, materials that get delivered, processes being carried out, and a vast network of stakeholders. From simple materials, more complex items are built. Roots underground, leaves photosynthesizing and transpiring above, these are some of the essential parts of our supply chains and delivery network. They are separate entities to the factory itself. But if you eliminate them, it's easy to see that you'd soon find things grinding to a halt. Without deliveries, there can be no operations. And if production shuts down, well, there's no goods to exchange, no payments being made. The workers don't show up for their shift. If this stays the case for long, then the factory will become neglected, abandoned, and eventually start to deteriorate. Maybe the roof begins to leak through lack of maintenance. As the structure of the factory begins to crumble, it rapidly becomes more fragile. A strong wind disperses parts of the outer wall. The storm penetrates the stockpiles and remaining materials are washed away far and wide. The weathering of a well-built factory can take time. This won't happen overnight. When we think of soils, we should know that they've had millennia to develop and build. No, actually millions of years. Over 350 million years ago, there were trees and soil organisms here on Earth. That's a fair amount of time to get your factory in good order. But today, the condition of the Earth's soils has been altered far too quickly by one consistent factor. Humans. When we began removing those supply chains and delivery networks that our soil factories depended upon, cutting trees for firewood or clearing the land to farm, we halted the operations at a rate that stopped things replenishing. Bare ground is something that nature can deal with well and in fact will thrive when given the chance to create something new upon its beautiful canvas. But that canvas, that factory, needs to keep replenishing itself for that to remain true. 
I've talked of the utter determination of life to keep bursting out of soil. But there can come a time when the factory is simply too abandoned to do it with vigour. The stockpiles are emptied and no one's refilling them. There's a chance for confusion here, because as I've already pointed out, seeds don't need soil to grow. They'll annoy you as they find ways to sprout out of a tiny crack in your concrete. This is where the idea of a factory works well. I doubt you'd locate your brand new facility where it can't be accessed by any suppliers or workers. Life thrives only when it is surrounded by life that's thriving. The brittle environments of Earth experience very low humidity. They are hot and dry, such as the Sahara Desert in Africa. And these are conditions which are some of the least forgiving on the factories of soil. With low moisture levels, they are dramatically impacted if elements of the ecosystem, such as trees and grazing animals, become removed. Taking them away quickly lessens the ability for plant life to be decomposed, and without roots or a fresh feeding of organic matter, the exposed ground is vulnerable, dry, readily dispersed by any rainfall or wind. If you go back 10,000 years, what we call the Sahara Desert was lush, green with grasslands, flowing rivers and wildlife. It's become recognised that even the slightest impact from humans grazing their animals and affecting the ecosystem at this time caused huge detriment to the soils in these very fragile climatic conditions. The vulnerability of soil in brittle environments can teach us a lot about the necessity to consider soil within the context of a whole system of life. Here, Tony Ronaldo shares his experience of when he first uprooted from his homeland of Australia to carry out missionary work in Africa, expressing not only how devastated the landscape was, but how challenging that then made it for life to be reintroduced. When we did end up landing in Niger, and uh, my wife and I had both studied agriculture, so we're f almost fresh out of university, very naive, very inexperienced, to be confronted by this landscape so degraded, so devastated, I, I believe it was on the point of ecological collapse. It was barely able to support life on Earth anymore. And yet, in my lifetime, and we were in our early 20s then, in the 1981, in my lifetime, this had been a dry land biodiverse forests with some wildlife, giraffes, monkeys, wild boar, a patchwork of farms in between that dryland forest, in certain areas springs that were reliable and relatively fertile soil. And it had been reduced to this almost totally barren, windswept landscape. So it was devastated. And, and the impact, we didn't realise at that time that climate change was a factor, but it was, the whole West Africa region has experienced a 25% step down in average rainfall. We didn't know that. What I did know was that deforestation was a major factor. And as population grew, as pressure for more farmland increased and people needed to feed their families, the normal practice was to clear 
the remaining forest and turn that into farmland. So it, it was devastating. We experienced increased severity and frequency of drought. Wind speeds with no tree obstruction could reach 70 to 80 uh, kilometers per hour, picking up sand and blasting the little crops as they emerged or burying them outright. And in very bad years, farmers would have to plant and replant and replant, even the extreme case, even up to eight times. And it's not as if they had a magic pot of seed. This was their food supply. So each additional planting was that much less food for the family. So pe people in a very hard situation, soil surface temperatures could exceed 60 degrees Celsius. So it was like an oven, very hostile environment for germinating crops. And then perversely, even when it did rain, because there was no biodiversity, there were no checks and balances, natural predators, insect eating birds, spiders, lizards, there's no habitat, so they'd all left. In the good years, <laughs> you could have explosions of pest outbreaks, so um, locusts, caterpillars, sucking insects. So even when it rained, there's still no guarantee of getting food. So people people suffered. It was it was harsh. I I could see, and and the the science backed it. Uh, Viable agriculture was not possible in that climate without some level of tree cover. The wind speeds, the high temperatures, the loss of soil fertility meant it, it just made sense. You had to have trees and, and the right kind of trees in there to, to create the, the fertility and the microclimate necessary for, for sustainable agriculture. So uh, if you can picture in this barren landscape, brown all around as far as the eye can see, and you create a tree nursery. So you've got this oasis of green in a sea of brown. So every critter imaginable is going to be attracted to this greenery. Even, where did they come from? Desert frogs, or I guess they might've been toads. They'd come up out of the ground and they would squat on this lovely moist pot that you had planted a seedling in, a seed in. <laughs> and, and they would wriggle around, get comfortable in there all the while destroying destroying that seedling as it emerged birds would come there no no other greenery around they would peck at the seedlings as they emerged if there were grasshoppers in a particular year that you were doing this work of course they would be attracted to it too even before you got out of the nursery it was it was war world war three the story that tony shares next was his turning point a realization that even in this extreme Nature has the resilience to turn things round. This segment is his aha moment for a method he would go on to term FMNR, farmer-managed natural regeneration. On this particular day, I saw something in a different light for the first time. And this bush, what I thought was a desert bush, caught my attention and I, I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look. And while there weren't a lot of trees in the landscape, the ones that were there, I knew them. I knew the species name. I knew their characteristics and so on. Immediately, when I saw the shape of the leaf on what I thought was a bush, everything changed. The leaf is like a signature. It tells you what species that is. It's not a bush. It's not a weed. This is a tree. And you brush that sand away, you can see the stub. It's been cut down 
and it's re-sprouting. I wasn't fighting the Sahara Desert. I didn't need millions and millions of dollars. I didn't even need a miracle species of tree that I could plant out and it was um, bulletproof, uh, resisting drought and goats and even people. Everything that you needed for restoring that landscape was literally at your feet because I knew there, there were millions of these bushes strewn across that barren landscape. And I, I call this the underground forest. If you cut a tree down, for most species, it's not the end of the tree's life. You have 30 to 50% of the mass of the tree underground. This root system with access to moisture and nutrients and stored sugars. And it's like this switched on V8 engine. It's idling and idling and idling, but it's not in gear. Because every year, that regrowth, those shoots that I saw, they're slashed, they're burnt, they're browsed by livestock, they're ploughed over. It's never given the opportunity to regrow into a tree. And so everything changed. The battle wasn't technology or, or finance. The battle was mindsets. What was it in people's beliefs about trees, in their negative attitudes, in their destructive practices? What is it? that's turned them against the very thing that they need to help them survive and thrive. And if I could win that battle between the ears, beliefs, attitudes, and then practices, then everything would move quickly because literally the, this, the, what you needed was at your feet. Millions and millions of these stumps. We were only getting, in a good year, 350 millimeters of rain in a four-month period, so eight months total dry, heat, wind, desiccation, four months, if you're lucky, 350 millimetres of rain, and yet in, in many instances those trees could grow a, a metre and a half, in, the, in better cases even two metres tall. There's a slight reduction in the wind speed right from that first year. If you leave enough of these bushes to regrow, you're, you're cutting the wind, slight impact on temperature, these trees are dropping organic matter, leaf litter, into the soil. So soil fertility is slightly increased. Organic matter is like a sponge. And what little rain falls is going to be held for longer. There's going to be less evaporation. There's going to be more available for the crop. The trees themselves, we didn't know this at the time, but many of the species are acting like a bio pump. They have deep roots. They draw water from deep in the soil profile, and at nighttime, the shallow roots are leaking some of that moisture within reach of the crop roots. And I've got startling photos where in a drought year, away from the base of the tree, there's total desiccation. The closer you get to the tree, it looks like it must have been a normal year. It's not just surviving. It looks like it's thriving because of this improved microclimate. As soon as you bring trees back into the landscape, you're creating habitat for insect-eating birds, spiders, lizards, and so on. And, and you know, need I go on? It's, it's breathing life. It's uh, rehydrating the landscape. With each year that you do this and the trees get better, the benefits increase. And what I've witnessed, I've been very privileged to revisit Niger in recent years and, you know, that description that I gave, this downward spiral of degradation and poverty and despair, when I go back, people have built on that foundation. You've got this basic tree cover. 
And now I see an upward spiral of restoration, regeneration, uh, relative prosperity. That Now, they're not driving Mercedes, but there's relative prosperity and hope. And it's enabled them now to diversify the types of crops and animals they're raising because there's more, more fertility, better temperatures and, and moisture and so on. And as soon as you add diversity, you're much more resilient. Droughts will still come, windstorms, heavy rain periods. But if you have different types of crops, they won't all be affected the same way. And maybe your grain crop will fail, but you can harvest some fuel wood or honey or wild fruit or something else. And the people are so happy when you go back. Um, they just want to show you. They want to tell you. There's clapping and dancing and song. It's powerful. <laughs> There's so much hope offered from work like Tony's that demonstrates the ability to return life to degraded lands. But of course it requires an understanding and a respect for the needs of nature. Even in the more forgiving temperate climates like Britain, Removing stakeholders from the factory of soil makes an impact quickly. But it's not so noticeable. When we cleared land for resources, our only concern of notice was if the resource ran out. Vast deforestation for timber couldn't sustain our needs, but we could turn our attention to new areas and eventually creating new materials. And as our developments expanded, the resource that we held of value became space. Land area. Still no concern for soil. And we could overcome this one by raising our buildings upwards. As the trees were torn down and skyscrapers and concrete became dominant in the landscape, still no notice on the effect it's having on the soil. But eventually, there had to be a need of ours that would make us take notice. And soil produces food. 38% of the world's land area is classified for agriculture. Though even still, taking value of soil and all its functions doesn't come easy here either. Even in our quest for sustaining food supplies from the land, we have moved a dependency from nature and onto man. Inputs manufactured from fossil fuels, carted around the globe and then sprayed and spread upon our farmland to turn these synthesised substances into something we can eat. We have benefited from this control, the consistency and prescription. We took the factory out of soil, did its work on its behalf, utilising it more as a space to hold on to the plants for us. Industrial farming has been a co-creation between man and nature. Man creating chemicals, managing their usage. Nature providing the seed, the photosynthesis. And it worked, sort of. But this co-creation put man as the leader, taking a role of superior knowledge and experience over an apprentice whose wisdom has in fact been learned over countless millennia. A flaw within this approach has been emerging. Headlines telling us that the world's soils have only 60 harvests left. 
a figure estimated by the UN and varying voices putting it a little either side. And although alarming, I'm not offering this to be an alarmist, because I think the needle can be readily moved to render those figures untrue if we just stop and think about what's happening. The resource of soil is not static like a keg of oil. It's a currency that can be replenished. And now we have a growing reason to take heed of soil as a resource of real value. Next, I'm bringing in Jason Freeman, founder of Farmer Direct Organic over in Canada. His mission has been in ensuring that the most nutritious and well-produced food for the consumer can also mean the best deal for supporting the farmers who are taking the steps to work in harmony with nature. He helps us to understand why our modern approach to agriculture has actually been diminishing our valuable resource of soil. So through the process of photosynthesis, uh, plants create sugars in their leaves. And they take those sugars and through their vascular system, uh, take those sugars and transport them down to their root system. And then their roots um, exchange with the microorganisms in the soil, sugar for micronutrients. Micronutrients are vitamins and minerals. So as this relation develops, the healthier the soil is, uh, the more microorganisms, more life in the soil is, the more sugars the plants produce because the more micronutrients the plants get from the soil, so the plants are healthier, and the more sugars this uh, soil gets from the plants, so the microorganisms grow and that community is very healthy. As simple as that. So, you know, what is essentially the difference between farming conventionally and farming organically in relationship to soil life? When you use synthetic fertilizer, specifically nitrogen, that bypasses that relationship. So the nitrogen goes, synthetic nitrogen goes straight to the roots, feeds the plant. The problem with that, it makes that relationship between the soil microorganisms and the plant redundant. Uh, it really interrupts the soil food web and it destroys a lot of the microorganisms and life in the soil. The microorganisms and life in the soil are mainly made up of carbon. And so that carbon literally gets released back into the air and it interrupts that whole soil carbon cycle. People are talking about sequestering carbon and it's not about like the carbon goes in the soil and just stays there. It's not about that. It gets cycled through the atmosphere and back in the soil and through the atmosphere and back in the soil. Since industrial farming, industrial land use uh, has come into effect, we've lost about 2,500 gigatons, that's 2,500 billion tons of soil-borne carbon. And just to put that in perspective, every year through fossil fuel use, we burn 50 gigatons of uh, CO2 equivalents. So 2,500 gigatons versus 50 gigatons. So although it's important that we transition off of fossil fuels, um, really a major uh, benefit to the climate and the environment would be if we had a focus on soil. And it's starting to happen, um, but we need to have a much, much more, um, much more of a focus on soil and we can kind of solve all of our, or begin to solve some of these carbon issues. For all those reasons, uh, regenerative organic agriculture, not using these synthetic fertilizers, creates that relationship, creates more life, creates more micronutrients in the plants and therefore more micronutrients, vitamins and minerals in the food that we eat. We eat more nutrient dense food, 
we will be healthier. And as we learn about uh, more about soil and food and how nutrients, micronutrients are transferred into plants or, you know, organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture is just a win. It's a win-win for everyone. Our journey with soil is giving us so much to think about. So to ensure that it still feels like common sense for you to take away and reflect on, let's recap. Bare ground is an uncommon sight in nature. The surface of soil invites life to take hold, and the presence of life is essential to replenishing this most valuable resource. We can recognise a lot about how well we're supporting soil by taking note of what is missing. Look around. Are the many stakeholders of the factory of soil present? The trees, the flowers, the insects, the birds. Dead materials for the decomposers. The worms. Every ecosystem is unique, but there must be a whole system for soil to stay healthy, replenished and in balance. And combined, it's all much more than a pretty scene. It's supporting the cycles and the climate. If we stop utilising chemical fertilisers to feed our crops, a frequent concern is that we'll have less food. But when we let nature take the lead, it is extraordinary how many nuances emerge. Diversity is one of nature's key tactics, and we could not wrap our minds around the complexity that can build in the number and variation of relationships within a system. Our factory analogy would need many more stakeholders to realise the true potential of the resilience and abundance of nature. Not only do we have the choice to regenerate our soils, but if we allow them to build in complexity in a way that only nature knows how, then we have the very real option to choose soil over oil for many of our needs. Last year on the podcast, I spoke with Sheila Cook, co-founder of 3LM, the savoury network hub for the UK and Ireland. She shared some wonderful wisdom about taking a whole systems approach to managing land. And she is the perfect person to help us nurture an appreciation of the adaptability and ever-growing complexity of a healthy ecosystem. In the holistic mindset, we're going to look at this farm and say, mm, actually, that's nature. And nature is very complex, and it's more complex than humans understand or appreciate today. And so within holistic management, we're working with the understanding that nature is one great big dynamic process going all the time. And we teach ourselves how to observe the signs of change so that we can know, oh, is nature uh, becoming more resilient or is nature being degraded? And basically our aim is to have nature be in full flight, to be ever increasing in complexity, meaning it's getting more and more resilient and more and more abundant, more and more complex. An industrial farmer will wake up in the morning thinking about how can I kill that weed today? They're always thinking about how can I kill stuff? Because they see that as robbing resources from the thing they're trying to grow. So that's the mindset. 
instead in a holistic mindset we're thinking about how do i make more stuff more of everything grow here so it's like almost like a night and day it's completely opposite way of looking at uh, the world so let's take the example of um, a dock or a thistle which are common uh, weeds that arise in a pasture and um, the temptation people have and what they're taught to do is at least top them so that when they're done grazing a field and if they've got all these so-called weeds still there they want to cut them down is what topping means so that the seed heads don't blow to the neighbor's field the weed is there because every plant has a function and those particular plants are the sign of land in a down stretch instead of an up stretch so these plants exist and come in as nature's repair plants and so they are restoring the balance of nutrients in the soil they're drawing minerals up from deep like they're tap rooted the dock for example is tap rooted and so it can go deep 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 and uh, remineralize um, the soil so all these plants are serving a specific function nettles come in where animals have been gathered for whatever reason and there's a lot of excess urine um, they, because they they love that excess uh, nitrogen in the soil and they're processing that and restoring that to healthy balance. I will probably see the plant on my farm for a long time, but I'll have peace with it because I will know a, it's doing something functional. It's repairing my soils, so that's a good thing. I want the plant there. It's doing a job for me. And two, it doesn't matter if the seed heads blow to my neighbors because those seeds are already in the soil. The soil itself holds uncountable number of seeds. The seeds that are arising arise and germinate because of the life conditions that are created for them. The earliest signs of change are at the soil surface, at the, at the air-soil interface, right there. And we look at for the signs of water cycle, mineral cycle, energy flow, and community dynamics. There's one indicator that indicates all four of those, and that's the amount of bare soil that you have. In the UK, we live in what's called a non-brittle habitat, means there's good moisture year-round. and we need moisture for growing life so it means life is easy to grow in the uk and also life is easy to decompose and that's it's that full cycle that needs to happen for nature to really flourish in the uk we have the potential because it's so non-brittle that um, plant a plant is right next to each other and there's absolutely no bare soil between that's when we see that, we know oh, this is in a really positive state of regeneration. In our pastures, however, because of how things are managed, it's very common for there to be spacing or gaps between plants. And that would be a sign of the ecosystem processes are not in full flight. They're being suppressed and depressed. And the consequences of that are going to be big when you have bare soil 
um, you're going to get capping, which means water and air won't enter the soil well, which means that that land will be prone to flood and drought quicker. It won't be resilient. The, those plants won't be as nutrient dense. Uh, the, the water won't be as clean, um, that all the water catchment coming off that land, um, whoever gets that water downstream, it's that land, that water won't be as clean because there's going to be a lot of runoff instead of infiltrating into the soil and slowly filtering out to the water systems. So just that bare amount of bare soil is one indicator. And for any listener out there, I would just challenge you to now go out into your back garden or your farm and literally look down and part the grasses and the plants. Is, is there gap between plants? If yes, that means there's potential for more. And so I think it shifts like from control to like just awe and wonder and curiosity and openness and inspiration and just the complete letting go of fear. The, there's no fear in there. It's more just like, like your jaw dropped open. I just can't believe what nature can actually really do. It's so powerful. This is all a learning journey, but I hope that you'll be able to take fresh eyes and feel in some way inspired from our take on soil today. Next time, I'll be in conversation with Patrick Holden of the Sustainable Food Trust. We're beginning to shift our focus more towards how we farm. So don't forget to subscribe to be notified of new content. You can find more information on each of the guests featured in this episode in the description. And let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>